Like a lot of churches, they talk about God doing stuff and you like want to believe it. But like the cool part for us is like we get to see somebody get into that water and tell a story about how God is actually doing something in their life. And it's not just me, you know, telling you this stuff and maybe you could believe me, maybe not, but you get to hear other people saying, hey, God's really moving my life. And I love that. I love putting that on display as often as we possibly can. So, all right, I want to start with a deep thought today, deep thought, jumping in, hopefully you're ready, hopefully you've had your coffee. Uh, it's a statement about you, and you might be thinking, that's not fair, you don't know me, and that's true, that's true, uh, but I think, I think I've got you pegged here. Um, and at first you might disagree, but, it, but if you let me explain, I, I think I can explain it. So, so here's a statement about you. You are a storyteller. You are a storyteller. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of that, so let me tell you some things I don't mean. I don't mean some people, when you hear storyteller, you think, you think liar, and I'm not, I'm not calling you a liar uh, right now, so you're, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. Uh, also, you might be thinking storyteller like some old man sitting on a front porch, sitting on a rocking chair, uh, you know, telling you about how you used to have to walk uphill both ways to school in the snow barefoot, something like that. I don't mean that either. I don't mean that either. So uh, here's what I mean when I say you are a storyteller. Everything that happens in your life only really has meaning because of a story that you tell yourself about that thing. It's not, it's not like the thing that happens to you doesn't have as much power as you think it does. It's the story that you tell yourself about the thing that happens to you that actually has more power. And I, the way I would try to like prove this to you is think about it. Two people can have the same experience. Two people can have the same circumstance happen to them and react to it in very different ways, right? So it's not the circumstance that dictates their reaction. It's the story they tell themselves about the circumstance that dictates their reaction. For example, two people could apply for the same job, both not get it. One person could go, this is it. This means I'm trash. This means I'm horrible. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. The other person could be, oh, okay, maybe God doesn't want me here. I'm going to move on to the next. Same exact situation, but they both told themselves different stories about the thing that happened. You're a storyteller. You tell yourself stories about the things that happen to you. And that, more than the things that happen to you, has power in your life. It has power to direct your life. It has power to shape who you are. The stories you tell yourself about the things that happen to you. And this even works, I'll push it a little bit further, it even works when it comes to your emotions that bubble up inside of you. You can't control the emotions that happen, right? You, you don't pick hey, I'm going to feel sad today. I'm going to feel angry today. You don't pick that, usually. Your kids pick it for you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you have a decision when the feeling bubbles up of what you're going to tell yourself, the story you're going to tell yourself about the feeling that you have. And it's the story that gives the feeling power. It's the story, not the feeling. It's the story, not the circumstance. You are a storyteller. And if I may compliment you, I'm not just trying to butter you up to make you like me and listen to me, maybe, um, but you're really good at it. You're a really good storyteller to you. You're really compelling to yourself. You're really persuasive to yourself. When you tell yourself a story, you believe it. You like it. 
you own it, and it becomes a part of your story. You're good at it. But, if I may, I think it's possible that sometimes, with certain circumstances, you tell yourself the wrong story. Sometimes things happen to you, happen in your life, and you tell yourself the wrong story about the thing, and it leads you to the wrong place. And I know that might be controversial these days to be to say that, to, to say, oh, you can tell yourself the wrong story because I know everybody wants to be able to own their own thing and do their own thing, and it's my story, and I can do what I want with it. But listen, I think you can tell yourself the wrong one. I think it can damage you sometimes. So what I want to do today is I want to look at a story here where two people have some things happen to them, and it's not the things that happen to them, it's the story they tell themselves about the thing that happens to them that shapes their reaction and ultimately shapes their lives. Uh, so we've been in the story of Esther. I don't know if you know that. If it's your first time here, we've been going through the book of Esther. I'll give you a real quick Cliff's notes to catch you up to where we are at at this point. So uh, if you don't know the story, Esther is a young orphaned Jewish girl. Uh, she wins a very sick and twisted beauty pageant to become the queen of the empire of Persia, uh, which is not really a great thing to win because the king is kind of a psycho. Uh, so she's now married to King Xerxes, who's an egomaniac, crazy person. Now, however, key point in the story that you need to remember is that she keeps her Jewish identity secret. She's not telling people that that's a part of who she is. Uh, meanwhile, King Xerxes uh, gives a promotion to this guy named Haman, who is, believe it or not, a bigger scumbag than Xerxes. He's a bad guy. He has a huge, huge, huge ego problem. Uh, there's this law that when he walks by you, you're supposed to bow down, which is wild. Can you imagine even wanting that? How weird would it be if everywhere you went, people had to bow down to you? Just weird. But this guy wanted that. He had that in place. Um, and he's walking at one point, and one guy doesn't bow down. And this guy's name, Mordecai. Crazy thing is, Mordecai is related to Esther. He's cousin. Uh, he actually raised her. Uh, so Mordecai doesn't bow down. And Haman is furious, just furious. Everybody else bowing down, one guy doesn't. Uh, he's furious to the point that he overreacts a bit. Uh, instead of just going after Mordecai, he wants to go after all the Jewish people. So he wants to kill everyone. He wants to commit genocide because this one guy wouldn't bow down to him. Uh, might be the biggest overreaction in history. So he goes to the king and he says, king, you've got these people inside your empire. They got all these problems. We should kill them all. He tries to convince the king uh, to kill the Jewish people, pays the king some money. King says, sure, stamps it. It's a law now. A year from that point, the Jewish people are going to all be killed. So they're under this death sentence for a year. So when Mordecai hears about this, he's upset. He uh, sends messengers to Esther and tells her about it. And Esther obviously is broken up about this. And Mordecai makes a request of her. And he says, Esther, you need, you need to say something. You need to go talk to your husband, the king. And you need to convince him to do something here. You, you, you got to plead for the life of your people. Now, uh, we learned last week that anybody who goes to the king without the king summoning them is automatically under a death sentence until he holds out this special golden scepter. And if he holds it out, you're, you're safe. But if he doesn't hold it out, you're dead. So Esther has this kind of uh, scary decision to make that she's going to go before the king, possibly be killed for it, but all for the purpose of saving her people. 
Uh, and I want to read the last verse we looked at last week because I think it sets the tone for, for Esther's state of mind. It's Esther 4.16. Uh, it says this. Uh, this is Esther speaking. Go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. Then, though it is against the law, I will go to see the king. And if I must die, I must die. So she says, hey, pr pray and fast with me. Like, let's, let's really get in a right place spiritually. And then she's going to go before the king, even though it could, it could cost her her life. What I want to point out is there seems to be, if you're following the story, there seems to be a shift in Esther's demeanor here. There's a new strength that comes. Like this is the turning point for her in the story, emotionally speaking. She locks in here. I mean, the statement, if I must die, I must die. That's, that's like it. She's now steeled herself to whatever comes next. And I, I just love this about her. So this kind of begins uh, Esther being in this place of strength in a crazy story. Uh, so she's gearing up. So this is where we like kind of a cliffhanger ending, right? Mordecai's like, you gotta go talk to the king. She's like, if I go talk to the king, I could die. And then we just ended. So you have no idea. This is like, like watching a show that only releases every week and you had to wait a whole week to hear like what happens to Esther, especially if you didn't open your Bibles, burned, roasted. Um, so you don't know. She could, she could be walking into her, her death here. So the beginning of chapter five, uh, the stage is set. Verse one. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the golden scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Whew. Okay, she lived. She lived. And again, I, I don't know, I like to always put myself inside of these stories. You just imagine she's walking into this place. She's, she's, her heart's got to be racing, got to be up in her chest. She's got to be like, this is it, this is it, this is it. She's got to have uh, all this kind of build up. She looks up, there he is, they're making eye contact. And the, if it was a movie, they would have drawn it out. Like it would have been a five minute like thing. Is he going to hold out the scepter? Is he not? And then all of a sudden he does. And whew, the tension is relieved. She's not going to die. But remember, the crazy part is she's already under a death sentence. So this would have been kind of a double death sentence, maybe a little quicker than the one she's already under. So the tension is relieved, but not fully. So here's what happens next, verse three. Then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Uh, <laughs> that would be distracting, by the way. Like you came in for one reason, but you just offered half the kingdom. I might be like, oh, you know what? I'll take that. <laughs> That's an interesting. Uh, now, uh, in the Bible, in Bible times, and even you, this actually happens in the New Testament as well. Uh, when a ruler says that, they're not meaning it literally. It would be tempting to try and take him up on it. But what he's saying is that he's open to her request. He's, he wants to say yes to her is what he's telling her, which is great. This is a perfect response. This is exactly what she wanted him to say. Like, what do you want? Not what do you want, but what do you want? Like, hey, I, I give you half the kingdom. I'm open to your request here. So here it is. This is the moment. You got in, you touched the scepter, you're, you're, you're safe. He just said he's open to your request. Let's go, Esther. Let's go. This is your moment. Verse four, Esther replied, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, 
if you're keeping track of this. She was not, that's not the question. That wasn't the question she was supposed to ask. She was supposed to say, hey, please save my people. They're under a death sentence. Haman's a dirtbag. He's trying to kill us all. I'm Jewish, by the way. <laughs> she's supposed to say that. But instead, she's like, hey, you want to come like, eat some, some brisket and cornbread? Like, that, let's do that. And uh, Now, I think if you look at the way this chapter unravels, I think Esther is being really wise and, and I want to say clever because uh, if you remember back to week one, uh, King Xerxes really likes to eat and drink. It's one of his things. So she's like speaking his love language here, right? This is, this is a, uh, she's speaking what he, what he would want. So, uh, and I think in relationships, you also probably know, especially if you've been in a, in a long-term relationship, this is not just what you say, it's how you say it. Right? So she has a thing she needs to say, but maybe that moment right there where her adrenaline's going and she just now got through one thing that she was terrified of that she didn't want to jump into another thing that she was terrified of. So she says, hey, let's take this next question that I have to ask you to a different environment. How she was going to ask was just as important as what she was going to ask. So she moves the conversation to a different environment. So... Uh, Verse five, king turned to his attendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet while they were uh, drinking wine. The king asked Esther, now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. So Xerxes, no fool, he knew she didn't really just want to eat some good food and drink some wine. He knows she wants something. So he asks again. And again, he kind of doubles down on this. I'm very open to what you're asking. Whatever you want, I, I want to I say yes to it. So here she is again at another great place where she could say, all right, hey, husband of mine, so there's something I didn't tell you about me. I'm Jewish. This guy wants to kill me. She could do that now. She's there. She's right on the edge again. Verse 7. Esther replied, this is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king and it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, she's really drawing this out. Please come with Haman tomorrow to a banquet I will prepare for you. Then it will explain what all this is about. Oh, so again, you know what this reminds me of? So the introverts in the room, you'll get this. Introverts, have you ever had to make a phone call that you really want to make? And I know you're thinking, that's all of them. Okay, so fair enough. Um, but you like, to the point, like have the number dialed in and then you stare at your phone and your fingers like going towards the button and you don't and then you like put it down and walk away you ever done that okay there's some people scoffing if you're an introvert and you've done that raise your hand told you told you you guys don't even know how how messed up we are that's what this feels like it feels like she's like right there Never mind, and she backs away from it. But I will tell you this. I also, again, I just want to give Esther a lot of credit here because of what she's doing. I also think, so I already said, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. It's also when you say it, right? So again, if you've been married for longer than five seconds, you know that it's not <laughs> the thing you say. Sometimes the timing of the thing you say is really, really important, right? Amen. And if you aren't saying amen to that, I need to introduce you to an idea <laughs> that sometimes it's just not the right time to be asking a thing or starting a conversation. You need to find the right time. So what Esther has done here, it's almost a little case study in, she wants to ask the right thing, the right way, at the right time. And, she, and, and think about it, what she's going to ask, she's trying to plead for the lives of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So this is not some like, hey, I want to buy this dress on Amazon, can I? Like, that's not the question, right? This is, 
I need to plead on behalf of my people. So she is being super careful. I need to ask this thing. I need to ask it the right way and at the right time. And, and who knows what she felt in that room, right? The, the Bible doesn't give us all the details. Maybe she just sniffed out that this wasn't the right time to ask, that this isn't, this isn't going to work this time. Like, I, I need to back away from this. So she punts to another meal. Now, what I want you to see in, in the first half of this chapter is Esther's demeanor in light of her circumstances. You have to put both those things together. From my estimation, as you read this, again, you don't have the internal, there's no like internal like monologue that tells you how she's feeling and all that. You can just see what she's doing. But on the surface, she just seems cool, calm, and collected, doesn't she? She's even keeled, she's anchored, she's not freaking out, she's being brave. She's risking her life, keeping her head on straight. She's sitting next to the guy who wants to kill all of her people, you know, with a glass of wine, smiling. Like, she has it together emotionally. She is the picture of strength here in a really difficult situation. Now, keep that in mind. Keep Esther's demeanor in her circumstances in mind. I want to look at a contrast here. Uh, So if this were... uh, uh, a Netflix series where the camera has been following Esther this whole time is going to flip perspectives here and the camera is going to start following Haman for a minute. Haman, uh, the super bad guy. Verse nine. Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. Now that's wild. Look, one verse, one verse. Look at the range this guy has emotionally. He leaves super happy, cloud nine. He sees one thing that he doesn't like, becomes furious. He goes from one end of the emotional spectrum to the other in two seconds flat, just flies from one end to the other. That's wild, right? And it's not even that big of a thing that affects him. Mordecai, Again, not bowing. I don't know why you're surprised by this. He hasn't been doing it. That's the whole reason you did what you did. But it drives him crazy. Drives him crazy. Now, I want you to keep an eye on Haman's emotional stability here because we're going we're gonna to follow him home here. Uh, verse 10. However, he restrained himself and went on home. <laughs> Listen to what he does. Then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. Then Haman added, that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to a banquet she prepared for us. She's invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. So did you capture what you just, did, you catch what you just did? He gathered his wife and his friends together for, it appears, for the purpose of bragging. That's, I, I, a little about me, I have a hard time, I'm a little cynical sometimes when it comes to people, so when I read something like this, I immediately get a little judgmental. I never judge you guys, because you're in my church and I love you, but other people, I struggle with this sometimes when I look at a thing on the surface and I'm like, ugh, ugh. That, I'm just like, really, dude? Really? You're gonna, like, did you catch, he's bragging about how many kids he has and his wife's in the room? Like, that's just weird, right? Like, hey, do you know I have like four kids? She's like, I was there for all that, man. Like, that's, I don't, I don't get that. Like, what do you think that means about him? 
that, that he just got back from this banquet. He got super ticked off on the way home. And then immediately he goes into, look at me, look at all this stuff. Look at, look at how good my life is. And by the way, it's good. I think we could all acknowledge that, right? You're not supposed to like Haman in this story. That's part of the way the narrator writes this. But you have to admit this dude's got it going on right now, right? He is. I mean, everything he's saying is true. He does have it kind of all the way around, but he doesn't have a weak spot. He, he, he's got the money. He's got the, the, the fame and the power. He's even got kids and a wife. Like you'd think a guy like this, that maybe he wouldn't have that part, but he does. He's the second most powerful guy. And he's getting invited to the banquet with like it's one and two in the kingdom. Like he's got it going on. But look at the next verse, verse 13. He then added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the palace gate. Wow. <laughs> Drama queen, really, dude. <laughs> so you have everything. You want everybody to know you have everything, but this one little thing, like a splinter, causes you to say, I hate it all. I, 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 nothing is good because this one thing is bad. Again, look at his stability in life. Look at, look at how he, he is emotionally. He has everything going right in his circumstances. I mean, what, 99.9 .9 right, one tiny little thing off, and he's thrown again. Thrown again. So I want to point out, I don't know if you've caught this yet, if you've diagnosed Haman yet, but Haman is insecure, right? You call him a very insecure person. And when you're insecure like this, those little things can really throw you, right? So he's in a room with, uh, I mean, self-proclaimed, he's got his wife and self-proclaimed friends. I don't know what kind of friends they are. Um, he just presented this whole thing to them. Look how awesome my life is, but I got this Mordecai guy who's ruining everything. So they're going to give him some advice here. Now, this is a great opportunity for them to say, hey, man, shut, hey, hey, man, shut up. Your life's awesome. Ignore this Mordecai guy. He's already under a death sentence. You saw to that. Shut up. If they were good friends, might be what they say. Verse 14, check out their advice. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends suggested, <laughs> set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. <laughs> this pleased Haman, so he ordered the pole set up. Now, here's the thing. I, <laughs> I have this sarcastic streak in me that like, if you read it one way, it almost seems like they're giving him, this is facetious, like they're giving him fake advice. Like, you know what you should do? Set up a 75-foot tall pole, stick him on the end of it, and then you'll be happy and you can go to the banquet. That's what you should do, Mordecai. And they're all kind of laughing. And Haman goes, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> like, that's what it seems like to me. I don't think that's actually what happens, but it's so crazy. It's so crazy to say that that's, what you, that's the advice that you should give to somebody and that he thought that's great advice. I also want to point out that 75-foot poles, that's a number, right? <laughs> like 10-foot High pole, okay, okay. You know, I'd vest in that, you know, 20 foot pole. But 75 feet, they wanted to kill the guy and put it on display like a spectacle of this thing. 
And Haman's like, that's awesome. That's an awesome idea. I'm going to do that. (laughs) So, again, I want to focus in on Haman's, the way he's processing things, the story Haman is telling himself about the things that are happening to him. And I would like to contrast that with the way Esther is handling her circumstances and the story that she's telling herself about her circumstances. Because they're opposite circumstances, right? Haman has everything going right. Esther, you know, she's almost under a double death sentence. Now she's just under one. Uh, Her parents died when she was younger. She got sucked into this queen thing, which isn't really a great thing. She's married to a guy she probably doesn't really love, I mean, like, let alone love, right? Like, it's, it's, it's all bad over here for her, risking her life constantly. Haman's got everything great, but they're dealing with things in the opposite way. Esther is emotionally stable. Haman is an emotional mess. Esther is the picture of strength and poise in a difficult situation. Haman is weak and crazy in a situation that's not even that hard. Esther Esther is risking her life to save others. Haman is going to kill somebody for the sake of his ego. The focus of Esther's life is outside of herself at this point. And Haman's life is just so, I almost want to say demonically warped in on himself. So I would ask you, if I wanted to ask a really obvious question, (laughs) which one do you want to be? But I know that. I know, you, I know which one you want to be, so I'll ask a harder question. Which one are you more like? Which one are you more like? Are you more like Esther? Able to be strong in a difficult situation, able to have uh, strength and stability in crazy times? Or are you more like Haman? The slightest little thing sends you into an emotional tailspin. Which one are you more like? I'm not saying that you're going to, those are pretty far extremes, right? I'm not saying which one are you. I'm saying which, which way do you lean? Because I know, I know you want to be Esther. You want to, you'd be dumb not to. I want to be Esther. I want to be, uh, no matter what happens, I want to be able to be strong. I want to be able to be even keeled. I, I want my emotions to stay in check and do the thing that God's called me to do despite all the stuff trying to knock me off course. That's what I want. I don't want to be the guy where the tiniest little thing knocks me off course. The tiniest little thing sends me into this emotional frenzy. I don't want to be that. I don't think you do either. So here's what I want to do. I want to make some, just some observations kind of about the story and then I'm going to talk about you. Um, number one, if you look at Esther, emotional stability and strength come when the story you tell yourself about your circumstances lines up with the story God's telling about it. That gives you strength. When, when the story you're telling yourself is close to the story that God is telling. If you can tell a close story to, the, to his story, there's strength in that. There's strength in that. Over here, Haman's story, the story Haman tells himself about his circumstances is nothing like the story God would tell about what's going on in Haman's life. So he's unstable because of that. So the closer your story is about your circumstances to the story that God would tell about it, stronger you're going to be. Because in Esther's case, yes, everything's bad. All my people are under a death sentence. I've been thrown into this position. 
but maybe God has me here for a reason. Maybe God's gonna use me in this situation. Maybe, maybe God is with me in this and this is what I was born to do. And she tells this story that's very close to the story that God is saying about this. So I wanna put that to you. That's not the only place that emotional strength and stability comes from, but that's a big piece of it. If you're telling a story that's wildly different from the one that God is telling, you're going to be emotionally unstable. You are. And then the second observation I want to make, they're all kind of related, um, specifically zooming in on Haman, insecurity is an identity problem. Insecurity is an identity problem. Haman's, the reason this is such a big deal to Haman, all this little stuff, um, is because it's not just that like it was important to him to be wealthy and well thought of and to have everybody bow down, but it's because those things actually fed into who he thought he was. He was finding his identity in these external circumstances, his money, his power, his, his, the, the perception of others. And Mordecai refusing to bow down pressed on his identity. It messed him up at the core of his being because Haman was finding his identity in these outside circumstances. And I want to say, if you find your identity in things like that, money, status, power, even relationship, oh, I have to be in a relationship or I have to be with this certain kind of person, I have to have this kind of status, I have to have this job, and you're finding your identity in those things, you're going to be insecure because those things can be lost. Um, and you'll, you'll overreact when those things are threatened. Think about it. If you find your identity in your job and your job is threatened, you're going to react even more because it's not just losing a job, you'd be losing who you are. If, if you find your identity in a relationship and all of a sudden the relationship starts to, to, to crumble, you're going to overreact to that because you are finding your identity in that thing. You're not just fighting for the relationship, you're fighting for who you are. So you'll, you'll overreact to things because you found your identity in those things. Your identity is kind of like the foundation of your life. You can't put it on things that be shaken. Christian, you're supposed to find your identity in Jesus. I roll my eyes a little bit because that's, if you grew up in church, that's a cliche. It's a cliche. Let me dig in a little bit to that. The third thing I wanna make an observation here is that you can work for your identity or from your identity. For your identity or from your identity. And this is all about the story that you tell yourself about your circumstances. Haman is working for his identity. It's all up to his achievement, his ability to do the things, have the things, get the things, be the things. He, he's working for it. And that means that anytime something bad happens, the story he tells himself is, I wasn't good enough. I'm not, I'm not a smart enough. I'm not quick enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not enough because I, I'm finding, I'm working for it. And if I don't get it, then it's, it, it falls back on my identity. But if you flip it, if you can be a person that, that works from their identity, if you know who you are, all of a sudden the way you look at your circumstances vastly changes because you're not relying on the circumstance to give you something. It's just the circumstances because you already know who you are. 
So if something bad happens, you're not owning that on an identity level. It's not that I'm bad. You know, okay, I lost my job. I'll get another one because I know who I am. It doesn't mean I'm a terrible person. I'm worthless. I'm nothing. I'm not working for it. I'm working from it. And that's the huge difference here. So Christian, if you are a Christian, you need to know that we are, as Christians, supposed to live from our identity. And an identity found in Jesus is not achieved, it's received. You get that. You, don't, you didn't work for it, you didn't earn it. You, you were given this identity. And once you own that identity, you can live from that. And there's a strength there that somebody working for their identity doesn't have. You, you will look completely different. Again, the same thing could happen to you and another person, but if you are secure in who you know you are and they've been finding their identity in that thing, your reactions to the same exact thing are gonna be wildly different, wildly different. So what if I asked you, who who are you? Who are you? It's a hard question, right? It's a complex answer. If you, if you immediately go to the things that you do or the things that you achieve or the things that you own for that answer, I would caution you on that. Those are things that can be lost. The first answer and the most important answer and the answer that should dominate your mind and your thoughts and your emotions should be centered around God. And when you have a relationship with Jesus, there's supposed to be a different kind of strength that you get. And a big piece of that is your self-perception will be then the story that you tell yourself about the circumstances that happen to you because it comes from a place of strength and you know who you are. So I'm gonna tell you here, uh, I just picked three things that I wanna tell you about you. The Bible says a lot about you, but I'm gonna pick three and zoom in on those. So again, this is if you're a Christian, if you have decided to follow Jesus, if you have put your faith, your trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, the first thing I want to tell you about you is that you are forgiven. Period. End of sentence. You are forgiven. There's no there's, there's no dot, dot, dot. There's no comma. There's no if. There's no and. There's no but. You are forgiven, period. That is who you are. If you can get that, man, I, I wish I could bottle that up, put it in a syringe and inject this into you. Look at Romans 8, 1 with me. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. All right, this is the, I rarely do this. This is crowd participation part. How much condemnation is there for you if you belong to Christ Jesus? How much? None. How much do you feel? You don't have to say that part out loud. I'm guessing not none because you didn't yell it out. Why the, why the gap? 
the crazy, have you ever read this? Like this verse is one of the most important verses. This verse stands above, this is like a peak in the mountains of, of, of the book of Romans. This verse is massively important. It says that if you belong to Jesus, if you're a Christian, there is no condemnation for you, none. And it comes on the tail end of chapter seven. Have you ever read Romans chapter seven? You should dive in, it's crazy. It's Paul telling you how big of a sinner he is. It's Paul admitting that he does stuff that he doesn't even wanna do and he goes back to a thing that he never wanted to go back to and it's this, this almost puking onto the page of all of this mess that is inside of Paul that he says, I'm just a sinner. And then he ends with this grand thing, thanks be to God that he sent Jesus and that my hope is not in my ability to do the right thing. And then he says this, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. None. The reason I wanna press on this so much is I want this to be, I want this to, like I want to saturate your soul in this. I want this to be so a part of the way you think about you because it's going to dictate the story that you tell yourself day in, day out as a Christian. Because some of you, what you do, you don't get this. You don't, you, you tell yourself, yes, you know, I am forgiven if, but, and, and what you do is, here, I can tell you how, how you can tell yourself that you don't quite get this like you should. When you sin and you realize you sin, do you run from God or do you run to him? Because if your instinct isn't to run right to him, then you don't get this quite enough yet. If, you, if what you do, if you, if you mess up and, and you do something stupid, if you do that thing and maybe it's not conscious, but you do that thing where you're like, okay, I gotta like, God, I won't pray for a while. I'm gonna, I'm gonna not read my Bible for a while. I'm gonna, I'm gonna not even come to church for a while because I screwed up. I screwed up and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself in time out. I'm gonna be away from you for a while. And, and then once I've punished myself, so you don't have to punish me, then I'll come back. You do that, some version of that. You run from God instead of to him because you're not, you're not owning this. You are forgiven. There is no, no condemnation, none. Do you, 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 some of you think, you think like Jesus is, you don't give him enough credit. You, you, you're living your life, you're a Christian, and you have this thought, like, I should know better. And you have, and it, again, maybe it's not conscious, but you have this thing, like maybe Jesus is going, well, if I'd known that you were gonna do that, <laughs> I don't know that I would have died on the cross for you. Or you look at a verse like this and you wanna put a little asterisk at the end where you flip to the back of the book and all of a sudden there's your face. There's no condemnation except for you when you do this. You act like you're some kind of exception to this. But I wanna point out that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And at that point, when he did that, all of your sins, all of them, we're in the future, right? They were all in the future. So he's not looking here now going, oh, if I would have known that, he's not doing that. All of your sins were in the future. Christian, what I want for you, I need you to know this, this is important. You're, you're gonna keep sinning. 
some pastors don't want to say that. You're gonna, every day, till you die. You're gonna sin, you're going to. You're gonna mess up, you're gonna screw up, you're gonna have a thought that you shouldn't have thought, you're gonna do a thing that you shouldn't have done, you're not gonna do something that you should have done, you're gonna have patterns develop, you're gonna have habits develop that aren't good, aren't healthy, aren't what God wants for you. You're going to keep sinning. The, the essence of the Christian faith is, yes, I, I would say officially as a pastor, I would love if you sinned less. That's really, it's good, you should, you should do that. But I also want you to get really good at running back to your savior when you screw up because you're gonna be doing it your whole life, your whole life. What if we just got good at that? I would rather have a church full of people who run back to Jesus when they screw up over and above a church that thinks they never screw up. I'll take a church full of people who were quick to run back to God, quick, because that means you get it. No condemnation, none. And, and I, here's the risk. I'll tell you, I'll let you in on a little thing. If, if this sermon would get on Twitter and a bunch of pastors would get a hold, or X or whatever the heck's called now, um, and the pastors would get a hold of it, they would say that I'm running the risk right now, telling you this, that I'm running the risk, that you're gonna say, oh, I'm forgiven, period. That means I can do whatever I want. That's what they would say. That I'm running the risk and leading you that way and you're gonna go, oh, good, I can go do whatever I want. I'll take that risk and here's why. Because I think if you keep doing what you want and you keep running back to Jesus, that eventually, as you continue to run back to him, you continue to run back to him, that eventually his love is so gonna overwhelm you that someday it's gonna click and you're gonna go, you still love me? You st you're still forgiving me? What? I wouldn't forgive me. I would never do that. And eventually it's instead of you being afraid that if you're gonna run out of sins and God's gonna be like, sorry, you hit your limit, I'm done with you. Instead of that, I want you to be so overwhelmed by his love and grace that eventually it washes backwards and you don't even wanna do it anymore. You're so drawn by his love and his grace that your life, you're just like, I, I wanna live for you. I'd rather have that. You're forgiven. Stamp that on your heart. I have two more. That's the most important one. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to skip those two. Because I want to sit on that first one. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And I think that might be the key to it all. So uh, worship team is going to come up here and lead us in a song. I would like if you're on our prayer team, if you could come over here and you could come over here. And here's what I want to do. Um, if you need prayer for anything, if you're struggling to accept the forgiveness of God in your life, if may maybe, maybe you've never accepted God's forgiveness, maybe, uh, maybe you've never taken that step of faith to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to, I want to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for me. Maybe today's the day. I, I want to invite you to do that today. If you've got something that's got a hold of you that you want to be free from, come up and uh, pray. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray right now because I, I know something. So close your eyes with me. Here's what I know. I can preach and preach and preach 
You're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. There's no condemnation, Christian, no condemnation. He died for all your sins, all your sins, all your sins, all of them. You're clean, you're free. I can, I can say that till I'm blue in the face, but I know it's only the Holy Spirit that's gonna land it all the way inside your soul. So God, I wanna pray for the person right now who's having the hardest time accepting the simple sentence, you are forgiven. Lord, I pray for that person right now that they think they screwed up so much, Lord, they're, they're still sitting there mentally fighting against it, that they've messed up, that they've messed up, that they've messed up. And it's such a big thing that they don't think you can, they don't think you would do it. They don't think you would forgive. Or maybe they just keep doing it, they keep doing it, they keep doing it, and they don't, they think that you're gonna run out eventually. Lord, I just pray that right now you would reveal your, them, that you would reveal yourself to them, how big you are, how huge your grace is, how powerful that cross was that they would be blown away, that your love would hit like a tidal wave and wash away this doubt and this fear and this condemnation, that they would sit here right now, truly, truly feel no condemnation from heaven, none. You paid for all of it, all of it. Lord, I pray that they would just feel that right now, that Satan's voice would be silenced in this room, that there would be none of that whispering, none of that you're not good enough, none of that you've screwed up one too many times, that your truth would reign and that it would sit and their soul could feel the release of that condemnation and the freedom of your love. Lord, I pray that it would stick a little bit of a hop in their step, knowing that they know that they know that they're forgiven. And that every time they screw up, that's the story they tell themselves, I am forgiven. And that they would run to you. Make yourself real, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.